turn to Genesis chapter 2. This morning we're going to continue our series on singles in the church. We've been going at this for several weeks now and and we've seen that uh, God has some singles gifted with a gift where they don't really need to pursue marriage. They aren't plagued by different desires and so they're they're fine they're fine with uh, just you know uh, remaining single and that's great they can secure undistracted devotion to the Lord but that is kind of the rare exception most uh, need to get married as a matter of fact they're given that command get married get a wife get a husband and so this this morning we want to talk about spousal acquisition how to go about acquiring a husband or wife in a God-honoring way. Even if you, if you realize, you know, I'm not gifted to be single and I need to have a husband or I need to have a wife, even if you realize that, that's just the beginning of it, isn't it? How do you go about finding somebody? You know, that's it. And if you're a woman, it might be even more difficult. You know, how do you get the guy to come around even, you know, you're just kind of waiting around. And so sometimes it can be a little frustrating and you really don't know how to go about seeking a, a husband or wife and obeying the command to get married. You know, and Paul talks about widows. He says, if you aren't over 60, you know, instead of being a busybody and going from house to house, get married. And was, well, that's okay. So how do you do that? And so that's what we want to talk about this morning. You know, we seem to be very good at, at kind of thinking about how we're going to go about doing important things. Like if you're going to buy a house or you're going to buy a car, you would go and maybe do some research and find out what models of cars are out there and what you can afford and their features. And and then you would kind of be prepared, maybe read up a little bit in case you get the high pressure salesman. So you're kind of ready to go out there and purchase a car. But it's amazing how many people um, don't put any thought or effort into figuring out how they're going to find a husband or a wife. They just kind of go out there nilly-willy just hoping they fall in love. And that's their method is to just wait and see what happens. And usually uh, they fall into immorality. Too often a Christian guy or gal sees someone that looks good to them. And upon some superficial inspection and then upon some very shallow profession of faith, they assume, you know, each other are Christians because they they speak Christianese and they have the Christian jargon. And and they seem to, you know, they're at church and they seem to be like, uh, you know, a potential candidate. Maybe they're cute or handsome or whatever. And so they think, oh, man, we have struck gold here. Well, often having gotten closer, they discover the person is not what they thought. And maybe they are kind of emotionally traumatized or maybe they are morally damaged. Maybe they go all the way and get married. And it's not until after they have sworn an undying oath to love that person until death do they discover that they have married Judas or Jezebel. 
maybe a Saul or a Demas or a Hymenaeus or Alexander, some sort of Christian pretender, a chameleon, and that person isn't anything they thought. I mean, when they were, were dating, they seemed to be a totally different person, but now they don't find it convenient to go to church, and they don't find it convenient to read their Bible, and they don't find it convenient to serve, and they just go back to the way they are always were, and that is a worldly person who doesn't love God. Then children come along. And then you have one Christian parent and one non-Christian parent, and the non-Christian doesn't want to go to church and doesn't want the kids always gone and wants to play and wants to do stuff on Sundays and, and doesn't have high standards and lets them watch what they want and look at what they want. And, and there's these two competing worldviews in the same household and it brings so much pain and so much misery. Why? Because those pursuing marriage didn't use discernment. They had no plan, no method, had not thought through how they were going to do it. They just kind of went through life and all of a sudden they were struck with this emotionally thrilling relationship and plunged themselves into all sorts of misery. And so we've learned that God says to singles, listen, if you don't have self-control, if you burn with passion, get married. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. How do you go about obeying a command like that? Well, it's not just by seeing what happens. It's by thinking through the scriptures, looking at what they say, deriving the proper principles, and then implementing those principles to life so that we don't end up marrying a Judas or a Jezebel. I just want to just start off. I, you know, I was going to look at the, like the best dating text in all the Bible. Of course, there isn't one. So I thought, well, let's look at Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25, and I'm just going to read this text because it's when marriage is established, created, defined, and God, the first preacher, brings the first bride to the groom. They're both his children, which is kind of odd. Um, brings them together in the first marriage, the marriage of Adam to Eve. And so follow along in your, in your Bibles as we look at verses 18 through 25 of Genesis chapter 2. The text reads, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So this is the classic marriage text where God defines marriage. He establishes marriage. 
He brings the first man to the first woman in marriage. And it's obviously obvious that in this instance, it was an arranged marriage. If you look at verse 22, the Lord God fashioned to a woman, the rib which he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. So God being all wise and all powerful, the creator, it's still the sixth day of creation. He creates Adam, then has Adam name the animal so that Adam realizes he has a need because there's no counterpart. There's no there's nobody that's like his opposite. He's seeing all, you know, male and female and all the animals, but he's he doesn't see that in himself. So he realized he he doesn't have a counterpart. So then God makes him a perfect counterpart in Eve. Of course, it's quite different today, isn't it? It's after the fall. God isn't specially creating uh, husbands and wives for each of us and bringing them to us. In that same way, you could say, well, you know, uh, God does still work through providence. He is still sovereign. And we could say that pretty much every person who ends up marrying somebody else, that happened because of the sovereignty of God working in the lives of those two people. But what you see in the scriptures is that though God is absolutely sovereign, he also chooses to work through certain means. And what I mean by means is, is, is by wisdom gained from the scripture, wisdom gained from other godly believers, uh, you know, prayer, things like that. As we, we pray, as we search the scriptures, as we seek godly counsel, those things are the means by which God desires to steer us. And if we reject the means, then a lot of times God will allow us, let's say, to marry an unbeliever. And then all of a sudden we have to suffer. Granted, he's going to use that for our good. He's going to sanctify us in the process, but it may be a painful sanctifying process. And so just because God is sovereign doesn't mean we can reject God's word or wise counsel when it comes to acquiring a husband or a wife. Now, what I want to do this morning is give parents and singles and grandparents and people who know people like that wisdom from the scriptures for acquiring a spouse so that you you or your children or your grandchildren don't end up marrying a Judas or Jezebel. And what I'm going to tell you this morning is not inspired. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take a lot of things and speak to you about a lot of things that are just derived from different biblical principles. And so as I go through here, I want to have you just think about these things. If you disagree, fine. Um, if you don't see how they really are derived from the scriptures, because I'm going to cover a lot of territory and I can't like develop every one, but I think it's going to be pretty obvious. Um, you don't have to do it exactly like I say, but you do have to submit to all the commands and all the principles that are in the scripture. So how do you go about choosing a husband or wife. Well, the first thing you need to do is kind of decide beforehand. This is before you get emotionally involved with somebody, because as soon as you do that, you've just lost your brain. You know, you have couples come in for, you know, premarital counseling and they're just, and they have this grin on their face. You go, well, I need to talk to you about something very serious. And they just, uh-huh, uh-huh. I mean, it's, you just like want to slap them and say, wake up, wake up. This is important. Oh, yes, we love each other. You know, that's just, that's not a good time to be receiving information. It's better before you get into that state to think through how am I 
or how are my children or what is my counsel going to be to somebody who says, you know, um, I'm thinking of getting married and I need to, you know, figure out how to go about finding a husband or a wife. Well, there's three common ways to acquire a spouse. First, there is arranged marriages. And of course, we saw that in Genesis 2.22 as God arranged the marriage between Adam and Eve. And in the arranged marriages, the, the parents have pretty much total control. The parents decide who their son or their daughter is going to marry. Usually parents talk and those parents agree and the young couple then gets married. And in kind of a, a maybe a, a very conservative end, um, a, a man might not see his bride until the wedding day. You know, everybody's there and he's standing up there going, I wonder what she looks like. I hope this isn't too scary. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, the wedding march plays. Everybody stands. The doors open. He's like, oh, is that her? Um, and he sees her for the first time. Okay, and you can imagine how that would be a little scary, awkward. You may kiss the bride. Is it okay? I guess. <laughs> you know, that's just a little different than America. But yeah, a lot of people do it and, and have great success. And the, the wisdom behind it is you have the older people, the people with more life experience, godlier, have been around, who are not fraught with emotions and making hormone-driven decisions, making an objective decision about who their child, whom they love and love deeply already, is going to marry. And so they choose on maybe kind of a, a more, you know, con- liberal end of the arranged marriages that, you know, the parents may allow the young couple to see each other and, you know, make sure they just don't absolutely hate each other's guts. But, you know, most of the time they just say, OK, mom, dad, I trust you. Whoever you decide, I'm going to go into that marriage relationship, resolving, committing to love them unconditionally. And, you know, that's what you need for a good marriage, isn't it? That is the foundation of a good marriage, to have a desire to love somebody as God states in his word for his glory, period. Now, for an American, that almost just seems like brutally mean and abusive. Because, you know, when you're an American, you know, we're we're pretty selfish and proud and independent. We want to do things our own way. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. We have our rights. We have a right to choose. And so we want to have control. And you can't expect me as a, as a Christian to actually trust my mom and dad. I mean, hey, I'm 19 years old, man. I know more than my parents. I want to get married. See, that's, it just doesn't, you know, bode well, does it? So for a lot of Americans, this whole idea of arranged marriages just seems so out of space. I mean, it seems so extreme and it's like, man, I can't believe they used to do that. Used to. They're still doing it. And amazingly, it has a very high success rate. The second method of acquiring a spouse is courtship. Courtship. Now, this can be done in a variety of ways. I'm just going to kind of explain the general procedure here. This is kind of done when you have a closely supervised relationship where the father kind of oversees his daughter's courting, being courted by a man. So let's just say that, uh, um, 
you know, some guy sees some gal who's a Christian in church and goes up to her and says, hey, how would you like to go out sometime? You know, if you if you want to see me, you have to talk to my dad. And so the dad is makes the young man makes an appointment, goes and sees the dad. He's sitting on the porch cleaning his shotgun. (laughs) Saying, what do you want? And then the father begins to interrogate the young man. So tell me. What do you do for a living? So tell me, how'd you come to Christ? So tell me, what are your intentions? So he begins to interrogate, and then the father may check up, do a background check, talk to the, pers- the young man's parents, look at his church. I mean, you know, he investigates. Why? Because this is my daughter. And so he's protecting his daughter. Then he says, I'll get back with you. And he may tell the young man, okay. You can come over for lunch after church on Sunday. So the young man comes over. They have lunch together. The daughter's kind of looking across the table going, hmm. And he's kind of looking across the table going, hmm. And then after he leaves, the father says, what do you think? To his daughter, maybe to his wife. And he said, yeah, I think we, maybe he, we could invite him over again. Okay. So pretty soon that young man is always doing stuff with the family, having dinner with the family, going shopping with the family, doing stuff with the family. And so the young couple is never alone. And so the chances of them falling into immorality is pretty much zero, just like an arranged marriage. It's pretty much zero. And so in that way, it's great. Now, if there comes a time when all of a sudden... That young man thinks, you know, I think I think this one might be the one. He doesn't go to the daughter and say, will you marry me? No, he's been instructed from the beginning by the father. Listen, if you're interested, if you're ready to pop the question to my daughter, you first come and get permission from me. He then goes to the father and then the father says, okay, uh, yes or no, or wait. And if he gives permission, then the guy can go ask the daughter. And usually by that time, the daughter would say yes because she trusts her father. And so in that way, courtship is a pretty kind of safe way where the daughter has input, the mother has input, the father has input, the young man has input. But if things aren't going well, then the father puts an end to it. And so he breaks the young man's heart. He doesn't make the daughter do that. Or even if the daughter is just Google-eyed over the guy and wants to marry him and the father says, no, this isn't right, then the father breaks his own daughter's heart instead of the guy. And so the father then basically takes the brunt of the abuse and the bulk of the responsibility and the kids are the winners. And that's how it works. Now, I am confident that if we were to like do a little survey among the singles here, maybe the parents with young kids who will be grown up and married most likely someday, if we were saying, now, do you think you're going to do arranged marriage? I think we'd take like very few, if any, would do arranged marriage. No, that's a little too extreme. Um, you know, we might have to move back to India to have that happen. Um, Okay, well, all right, so you're not going to do arranged marriage. Okay, what about courtship? And I think some of them would say, yeah, that kind of sounds pretty good. But, you know, there's a problem. The problem, the practical problem with arranged marriage and courtship is they work when you have a godly mother and father who are interested in their child marrying the right person and have thought through and make plans and implement those plans 
and train their child and the daughter is living at home. It's very difficult to kind of oversee courtship when, you know, a couple's divorce and mom's in Florida and dad's in New York and the daughter's in California and she meets a guy and says, well, fly to New York, talk to my dad, fly to, you know, talk to my mom and then come back. And if you're interested, then we'll both move to New York to be by my dad so he can oversee us. See, that just doesn't work very good. And, and, and when you get involved in these kind of things, you realize the ideal situation doesn't come about very often because of our society, because we're so mobile, because we're spread out and we're all over the place. A lot of times it just, it just, the practicality of this just doesn't work well. And so even though, um, both arranged marriage and courtship are very good as far as their ability to protect people from falling into immorality and both offer the wisdom of older, godlier, more mature people. Yet there are practical obstacles in the way that sometimes just make it very impractical. I mean, a lot of singles in the church, they don't have believing parents. Maybe their parents are dead or they, they, they just aren't believers or maybe they are believers but maybe you know the dad is and the mom is or and maybe they're immature believers and maybe they haven't even thought through it and maybe the whole idea of oh they just think well they'll go out there and find somebody i don't know and so a lot of times it's just not uh it just it just doesn't work as ideally as you wish it maybe could now there is a way that you can kind of um modify the typical courtship approach and and how you do that is you find uh gals you find some godly couple in the church who's willing to oversee your relationships and so before any guy even comes around you approach one of the elders one of the pastors and you know some godly couple that you know and say listen you know nobody's after me yet but if they come you know, would you mind taking on the responsibility of overseeing the relationship because my parents are dead or they don't know the Lord? Would you be willing to do that? And then they'd say, okay, so some guy comes along and says, hey, you want to have coffee? And say, like, well, you need to go see so-and-so. Well, who's that? He's my overseer. And then that person interrogates him. That person says, okay, you want to spend time with her? Why don't you come over for lunch? And pretty soon, then that couple can then protect the woman and guard you as you go through that relationship so that the potential of immorality is very low. You still get the input from godly people. And so that's how the church can come in there and kind of do kind of a modified courtship approach. But even then, a lot of people just aren't going to do it that way. And uh, that leaves us the third method and that is the most common in it in america and it's dating dating pretty much puts all the responsibility to acquire a spouse on the couple the young people they choose each other they set the rules they determine the level of accountability they are fully responsible. It's pretty much exact opposite from arranged marriage where the parents have like complete control and then dating the, the young people have complete control. Because after all, I mean, you know, they're you know, 19 or in their 20s. They pretty much know everything. And what can my parents contribute to me? And, you know, we can do it our own way. And, and usually they do. And it ends in immorality. It's just how it is. You know, a lot of times when people say, so, so how are you going to do it? Well, well, you know, I, I think well, I'll just practice dating. And so when you go out, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going get to get, a, get to know them. Have fun. 
go eat, hang out. There's not even a purpose, you know. So what do you say you get to know him? What do you mean by that? Well, you know, talk to him. About what? Oh, I don't know. Weather? I don't know. Baseball? I don't know. What colors they like? What food they like to eat? See, a lot of times they're just, you haven't even thought through it. There hasn't even been like any intention. There's no plan to deal with it. And because of this, they often grow close, fall into immorality. They break up. They go through another series of relationships that are the same, employing the same flawed process. And if they ever end up getting married, they have so much baggage and so many woes and so many hang-ups and in their past, it just pillages them for a long time. But this is the American way. It's Satan's way. (laughs) And it's not very good. I'm not saying that dating is necessarily bad. You can do it in a good way. Just like all these methods, you can, you can do one of the, you know, these methods in a good way or a bad way. And since most people are choosing to date these days, that we need to get some guard up. I think there should be some sort of courtship dating merged method uh, with more oversight than um, what most young people have. Now, as soon as you start talking about dating and courtship and arranged marriage, and then it becomes, well, you know, somebody will say, well, arranged is the biblical method. It's like, oh, really? You go, yes, that's what we see in Genesis 2.22. God brought Eve to Adam. And somebody says, no, 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 no. The biblical way is courtship. That's how we see. And then pretty soon they all try to justify their position from different examples in the scriptures. Now, it is true that there are different examples in the scriptures. However, and this is so important, whenever we go to develop a doctrine, we never derive our doctrines from what is what are called descriptive texts. We always go to what are called prescriptive texts. A descriptive text describes things. It says, this is what we see in the Bible. This is a historical event that happened. And yes, we can derive principles from that. We can learn from examples, both good and evil. However, how we use those texts for our edification is by taking the prescribed text and using what is prescribed the commands, do and don't do, the instructions, let this happen, don't let this happen. We let those texts regulate how we use these descriptive texts. And if we don't do that, we get into all kinds of nightmares. And let me just give you some examples here. Let's say you're going to look in the Bible and you're going to find out the biblical way <coughs> to get a husband or wife. Here's one way. Here's how Abraham did it. He got Eliezer, his servant, and said, what I want you to do is I want you to go to the land of our relatives, and I, and I don't want you to get a, a wife for, for Isaac um, from any of the pagans. It's got to be from one of our relatives, and I want you to go there and find a wife for him in this distant country, 
and, um, and bring him back. And I want you to put your hand under my thigh and swear that you're going to do this. So he does. And then Eliezer goes on his camel and he, he goes to the relative's country. And, um, and there he sees this beautiful woman who is uh, there watering some camels by the well. And uh, then he has this little fleece discussion with God and says, no, Lord, I'll tell you what. No, the, the woman that I say who offers me a drink and, 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 and then says, uh, and then, and then, Give, I'll water your camels. Well, that will be the one, okay? The, 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 the drink offerer and camel waterer will be the one. And so that's what happens. He, he goes there. He, he, he sees this beautiful gal and says, uh, yeah, uh, can I have a drink? She goes, yes, and I will water your camels as well. And he goes, oh, bingo. And then he puts a gold ring in her nose, which is an important part if you're going to do that. Then he basically goes back to her father and says, listen, I want to take your daughter. I know you don't know me. I'm a stranger. I'd like to take your daughter away from you. Take her a long ways away into a different country to marry a person you've never met. That is biblical. Now, of course, we don't water camels, so maybe you have to go around, find, you know, a gal working at a gas station, ask her for a drink, and if she says, can I fill up your car as well, then you'll know. (laughs) Or maybe we could use the Jacob method, you know? After fleeing from his brother, he went to the land of his relatives, and he encountered Rachel there. He fell madly in love with her. He made an arrangement to work seven years so he could marry her, and he did that. And then when the wedding night came, they got him a little drunk. They switched women on him. And when he woke up in the morning, behold, it was Leah, Rachel's sister. And he found out he married, was tricked into marrying the wrong woman. Then he, then the, the, the his father-in-law to be said, listen, it's okay. Uh, I guess it was father-in-law for the one wife. Um, yes, yes, uh, you can have the other one as well if you work seven more years. Now, here's the biblical principle. Guys, all you got to do is work 14 years, give all the income from those 14 years to your father-in-law, he'll let you marry any of his daughters. It's like, take them. Why go anyone you want? It's biblical, right? It's in the, that's the biblical way. Or maybe you can talk to Benjamites. They have an interesting way. The Benjamites had uh, been decimated because of war and a lot of their women killed. And, and so the, the guys are kind of all showing up saying, well, we're fighting war and all our wives are dead and gone. And so we need wives. And so get this, the elders of Israel, the spiritual leaders say, this is what you do. There's going to be a big feast and a dancing party. And you just kind of sneak through the vineyard and hide in the vineyard among the vines. Then when the women come out and they start partying and dancing, just go out and grab one. (laughs) Now, could you imagine, you know, you, you see your neighbor coming home and saying, yeah, did you see our daughter? Yeah, we saw her. A guy had her flipped over his shoulder and was running into the vineyard. It's like, what are you talking about? Yeah, the Benjamites needed wife, so she married somebody. We, we didn't get his name. Maybe she'll send you. It, it, and that is biblical. Just kidnap a wife. Or maybe you can use Samson's method. If, if you have a lot of muscles, let's say you do it. You just go through town with your parents just flexing. And, um, and then when you see some really gorgeous woman, you 
you look at her and you tell your parents, get her. She looks good to me. And then they kind of become your purchasing agents to get the woman. I mean, it's in the Bible. Or you can, you know, if you're a single gal and nobody's coming around, nobody's trying to purchase you or kidnap you, then just try this. Try and find some older guy who isn't married. He's got to be old, wise, godly, and very rich. Sneak into his house at nighttime, uncover his feet, lay down at the foot of his bed, And when he gets cold and he's going, man, what's going on? And he gets up and he sees you there and goes, what are you doing there? Then pop up and say, would you marry me? (laughs) And just keep doing that until someone says, okay. (laughs) Or you can use David's methods, you know, just uh, pray on some other man's wife, commit adultery, get her pregnant and then murder her husband and marry the widow. It's biblical. I mean, he was a man after God's own heart. Do you see how ridiculous it is if we go to texts that are describing what has happened and we try to turn them into prescriptions, what God commands Christians to do, then we just get into all sorts of trouble. This is the problem in the charismatic third wave type churches. What happens is, is you have people who go to different places in the Bible because they don't understand how to study the Bible and they take narratives and examples in narratives and they turn them into prescriptions and of course they go astray when they do that so we don't want to do that so what do we do i mean there isn't a clear text there's several texts that command um, singles to get married but How do you do that? There isn't a, this is how you go about acquiring a spouse according to the will of God. There isn't one of those passages. So what that leaves us with is to then look at the scriptures, try and find out some biblical principles that we can then use to apply to a method that might work to help us get a person that would honor God and be a blessing to us. And I'm just going to give you two things first of all, and give you some examples of some prescriptions that, of course, you would have to follow. In whatever method you decide to use, you would have to follow these two prescriptions. One is, you, if you're a Christian, a real Christian, not just a professor, but a real Christian, you have to marry somebody in the Lord. You have to marry another Christian. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 7.39, for instance, you have to marry another believer. So, um, I mean, okay, you can say, well, okay, that's easy. No, no, well, understanding the concept's easy, but how do you know if somebody else is a believer? See, that's the hard part. I mean, you know, most people in America call themselves Christians and most aren't. So how do you find the one who is and the one who isn't? See, it implies just stating the command and realizing I have to marry a Christian, then should make your mind go, how am I going to go about doing that? And we're going to talk about that more later. Second... The Bible clearly states that you have to maintain moral purity. So whatever the method is, and we've spent three weeks on this, so you guys know it, you have to maintain moral purity. So whatever method you use, you have to use it in such a way that you maintain moral purity. You have to do that. So that would be two examples of prescriptions that have to be applied to whatever method you're going to use to acquire a husband or wife. Whatever method you use, they got to be a believer You have to maintain moral purity. And that would just be an example. All right. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What's your thing? Usually people 
who are looking to get married, the first thing they do is they go out there and they try to find what? They try and find some person, right? The right person to marry, right? Backwards. The first thing you want to do is you want to be the right person. First seek to be the right person before you go try to find the right person. Don't do it backwards. First look at your own life and say, am am I fit to be married? You know, a lot of times, you know, I... I've talked to singles like, well, you know, there isn't anybody who's, you know, very cool around here. I mean, they're all kind of homely looking and, you know, they, you know, nobody has a really nice car like I do. And, you know, they're, they're standards. They're so worldly. They just don't even see, well, pal, you don't even brush your teeth. You don't even make your bed. Your finances are shot and you're, you're, you're like, you're picking on these people because of these things that don't matter. No, first you have to seek to be the right person. You say, well, 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 how do I know? How do I know if I'm the right person or not? I mean, you know, okay, I, I need to be the right person, but what does that mean? Well, let me give you just a seven-point test. A seven-point test. You can write these down. I would encourage you to write these down for your children, for you if you're single, for your grandparents. Write these down. Just write these down, and, and if you ever get in a discussion, you can talk to somebody. This is a good thing. These are just things that Christians do. These are things that God tells Christian tells Christians they, they need to do. If you're a Christian, God commands you to do these things. And so the question is, are you doing them? Like the Bible. That would be a good place to start. Are you reading the Bible, studying the Bible, meditating on the scriptures? Would you say that over the last week, last month, last six months, last year, that you have a faithfulness in reading, studying, Maybe listening to the Bible on tape, listening to sermons, going to Bible study, whatever. Are you constantly letting God's word nourish you up? Are you nourished up in the words of the faith and sound doctrine as 1 Timothy 4, 6 says? Is that is that you or not? Now, if you're saying, well, no, no, that's not me. Well, then don't, don't go pursuing marriage. <laughs> There's something wrong if you don't have like, that's like, you know, letting your your six-month-old child get married. You wouldn't do that, right? No. You want them to grow up to some physical maturity before you're going to launch them in society. Well, if you aren't reading your Bible, that's like baby step Christianity. And you need to get to where that's a habit in your life. Secondly, how about prayer? When you look at your life, do you pray? Do you talk with God? You know, you, you know, maybe you have a structured prayer time. I'm, you need to do that. But maybe you just, just during the day, do you talk with God? Do you ask him about things? Do you, you know, ask him for help, ask him for strength, ask him for wisdom, praise him? Do you find yourself conversing with God throughout the day? That, that's what Christians do. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, no. No, I mean, every once in a while I pray. If I, like, I have a tragedy in my life, I might pray. That's not good. I wouldn't be pursuing marriage. I would first discover why you don't have a prayer life. Third, fellowship. Do you like being around other believers? Do you like being around other believers? Do you love fellowshipping with the saints, talking with other believers, hearing their testimonies, hanging around, coming to church, being involved in ministry? Do you like fellowshipping? You know what? If you just say, well, I make it to church, you know, once, maybe twice a month, and I'm not involved in Bible study or discipleship group, and I don't go to Sunday school class, even if we had them. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I'm 
you know, I just, I like Christianity. I just don't like Christians. See, that's a problem. Don't go getting married. You need to find out why that's broken in your life. Or giving. You know, when you look back at last year, do you do you faithfully, regularly give with a cheerful heart? Not under compulsion? I mean, like the scriptures say, do you do that? You know, if God doesn't have control of your finances, then you need to have him get in control of your finances before you pursue marriage. Because what are you going to do when this the person you married wants to give and you don't? See, that's a problem. Or personal integrity. Personal integrity. How do other people see your character? Do people see you faithful, honest, hardworking, showing up on time? You know, just character. You're, you're a person of character or trustworthiness. Is that what is the pattern of your life? And if it's not, don't get married because you would just torment that poor other person. They're, they're going to be frustrated to no end because you don't follow through, you don't keep your word, you aren't doing what you said. It's just going to be a nightmare. And seven, personal purity. Are you maintaining personal purity in your life? You know, if you're looking at things, reading things, talking about things, doing things that are immoral, then don't pursue marriage. Don't go there. First, get that under control and then pursue marriage. Now, when you look at these things, these are just, these are just kind of fundamentals of what it means to be a Christian. These are just things that Christians do. So if you're looking at your life and you're saying, well, but I don't do those. Well, then I would look at your salvation and see if you actually love the Lord. Because if you love the Lord by keeping his commandments and you have no desire to do these things and you have no desire to love Christ and 1 Corinthians 16 says, if anybody doesn't love the Lord, let him be accursed. You're, you're outside the pale. You may be deceived in thinking you're a Christian and you're not. Now, you need to get those things under. You don't want to inflict somebody with your ungodliness, do you? See, if you love somebody, if I love somebody and I say, you know what? I love this person. I want to commit my life to them and love them. Well, how can I say I love them if I'm not loving the Lord? See, do you see the problem there? See, if I'm saying, see, I love you and I want to do what's best for you, then why would I enter into that relationship knowing that my life is in rebellion against God, that I'm not submitting to God, that I don't love God, that I'm not giving God control of my life, and and then pursue that person and say, I love you. Do you see the problem there? That's a problem. And so the first thing that must happen is you need to look at your life and say, you know what? You know, I I think I only got about three of those seven things you mentioned there. Then set aside TV time, set aside hobby, set aside playing. Pursue those things until those things become the normal habit and pattern of your life. And then once they become that normal pattern and habit of your life, then say, okay, I think I'm ready. I'm not perfect. I'm still a sinner because we all are. I'm not talking about flawless perfection here, but when I look at my life, yes, I faithfully read the Bible. I, I, I faithfully study it. I, I faithfully prayer. I, I faithfully fellowship. I faithfully serve. I faithfully give. I faithfully have personal integrity. I faithfully have personal purity. And that characterizes my life in general, though I fail in every one of those areas periodically because I'm a sinner. Okay, now let's just say that's true. Then what? 
Well, the third thing is, is then you go find the right person. Once, once you have developed those disciplines, which really are necessary to bless somebody else, to be a faithful husband or a faithful wife, now you say, okay, I'm going to go out there and try and find somebody. That, and you're ready. Now the question is, how do you do that? Well, the first thing is you, you should probably have some non-negotiable criteria, right? I mean, you know, if you're going to go plunk down $20,000 in a car, you don't just like take anything they give you. No, you got some criteria. Well, you should have some criteria about your husband or wife, which is far more important than any car or any house or even a piece of clothing. I mean, you know, people go on and look at clothing and, you know, measure them up and try them on. And, you know, they have certain colors and styles that they have to have. And those are the criteria. Well, you should have criteria. So you're single. You're the right person. You meet somebody that interests you. You you talk to them. Well, what are you going to talk about? Well, you might talk about those things we just talked about. You know, are you in the word? Do you fellowship at a church? Are you a member? Are you serving? You know, a good thing to do is before you even approach the person, if you can find out from other people what they're like, that would be even better because there's no emotional trauma. I mean, everybody who's been through a, a breakup in a relationship knows that it is not fun. It is painful. So you, you guys, maybe you're seeing some gal and you're thinking, oh, she's kind of cute. And here she is in church. I wonder who that is. And so then you go to the pastor overseeing that ministry. Yeah, so what do you know about so-and-so? It's like, you interested in her? Yeah, stay away. like do you see that lump in her back that's where the fin sticks out if she doesn't have it covered and taped down with duct tape yeah you know just looks don't tell you anything and so you investigate you investigate to make sure that the person um, is the kind of person that would be a blessing to marry that would be a god honoring to marry you know, let's say you go out, let's say, you know, uh, kind of an ideal thing is maybe you're both serving in church and you both get to know each other and you're both kind of friends and all of a sudden you start getting a little closer and all of a sudden the guy says, hey, how would you like to go out to coffee sometime? And you say, okay, so you go out and maybe have some coffee and, and so you're sitting around there and uh, you're chatting, what, what are you going to talk about? And so let's say, let's say if you're a girl, you, you might say something like this, so, so why don't you tell me why you exist? And if the guy goes, what? Then say, gong, you're not the one. No, um, you, don't, you don't do that. You don't have to do that. No, but you might say something like, um, you know, I mean, why do you take up space in this universe? Why, why do you exist? What is your purpose for, for being? And if he looks at you and goes, are you like a philosophy major? No. See, then you know something right away, right? Person needs to know the Lord. They're a very young believer or a very ill-taught one. Now, if you say, so why do you exist? Well, glorify God and enjoy him forever. Good answer. So tell me, next question. How'd you come to know the Lord? And then you listen very carefully to their answer. Do you hear them saying something like, well, I grew up in a Christian home and, uh, you know, I haven't killed anybody. I've never robbed a bank. You know, I've tried to read my Bible. You listen to see if they're going to give you a list of their good works. 
How did you come to know the Lord? Listen for a list of their good works or the list of someone else's good works, as in Jesus's. Yeah, I place my faith in what Jesus did, that he died on the cross for my sins and was buried and rose again on the third day. You know, if they give you some sort of nebulous thing, well, you know, I mean, I've, you know, believed. It's like, believed what? Well, you know, in Jesus. Okay. Then you might want to ask a question like this. So tell me, um, what is the gospel? I mean, what is, what is it that someone needs to believe in order to be saved? What is that good news message? And I'm telling you, you're, you, you're going to find out what they're like right then. They look you and say, listen, this is the gospel that God is holy and men are sinners, that Christ gave his life on the cross, died in our place, was buried and rose again on the third day, conquering death. And that if you place your faith in him, he then justifies you. He forgives you. He takes your sin away and imputes to you his righteousness. Like, oh, man, this person is a hunk. I mean, you're ready. Woo. I mean, OK, so you're getting somewhere now, right? But you don't say, well, you know, what's your favorite color and what kind of ice cream you like? Man, talk about real things. Talk about things that matter. Dialogue with them about those kinds of things so that you're talking about things that are real. Right. And do it right off the bat. Why? Because you don't want to get so, all emotionally involved. And then pretty soon, once you're emotionally involved, it's like, I don't care if they're an atheist, they're cute. So make sure, make sure they know the gospel, find out about them. Then once you get through and you have that first little discussion, don't assume they're telling you the truth. I am telling you, it's like, no wonder why there's con people. There's a lot of people who are willing to be conned. I have seen guys come into church because they have seen a girl that they like and think is cute. They come into church and become whatever they need to become in order to capture the woman. It's like, oh, I need to serve. Where do you want me to serve? Oh, I need to be a member first. What do I need to do? I go to a class. Oh, I need to read my Bible. How much? It's just a task. It's a means to an end. You want to get a nice moral Christian wife that hasn't been used up by a whole bunch of other guys. You go through with just whatever. What do you want me to do? And then they go through all these motions and the girl just goes i've got a wonderful christian guy look at he's reading the bible he's involved in ministry he's doing this and then and then i say you know have you called the church he used to go to well he never went to a church hello you think you saved him do you think he's coming here because he's pursuing you or he's coming here because he loves the lord so I, I am amazed at the dullness of some people. Or they say, yeah, I go to this church and I've been involved in this ministry and I'm serving, I'm doing this, I've led this ministry and that ministry. It's like, oh, really, really? Okay, then get on the phone and call that church and say, hey, what do you know about so-and-so? And they go, oh, man, that's a nightmare. Now that person hasn't done that. that person, And then you realize that person has been lying to you. I'm telling you, there are people in this congregation who have had that happen to them. And then they get married and then they discover, I'm married to Judas. 
or Jezebel. Then they wished to God they were single, but it's too late. So don't let it happen to you. Gals, do not settle for a guy who doesn't have his act together. Don't be dating him. Don't be pursuing a deep relationship until you've thoroughly discovered that they've met the biblical criteria and the non-negotiable things that you have determined beforehand they must meet. And if they haven't met those and you haven't checked from other sources, then don't just go into it because I'm telling you, it'll ruin your life. And it has for many. And guys, don't be dumbstruck by a cute girl. I'm telling you, they're going to get wrinkly. (laughs) It happens. With age, you just start decaying. And then pretty soon, they're not going to look all young anymore. You know, when you're 70 years old, you have to love that person for what's inside. Because a lot of times the outside isn't very cute anymore. Entropy is set in. The second law of thermodynamics. You've gone towards randomness. Everything that is up is now down. And everything that was long is now short. And you won't look all that good on the outside. But in the inside, while your outer man is decaying, your inner man is being renewed what? Day by day. But if you have married somebody for their externals then you're going to be disappointed because I'm telling you, their externals are going down. But if you marry somebody because of their internals, their character, because their love for God, you will fall in love with them regardless of what they look like on the outside. Even if they get in an accident, they're burned with a fire and as uglier as the mud fence, you're still going to say they're great. I love them. Why? Because I love them, not their skin. And so, yes, there is a command for those with the gift of singleness to get married. Paul tells those widows who are not widows indeed, not over 60, to don't be a busy body gossip going from house to house, speaking of things not mentioned, get married. So he does it twice. And so how are you going to do that? What is the method you're going to use? Are you the right person? Make sure you set up criteria to find the right person. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us in your word. Thank you for the wisdom that your scriptures give us. And Father, even though the method that I have laid out here is not inspired, I pray that each person here would see your truth and making sure that we think through these things before they come upon us. I pray for all of the parents here that they would begin diligently to train their children, that their children might understand how to wisely choose a husband or wife. I pray for the grandparents here who will have influence with their grandchildren and great-grandchildren to encourage them to do what is right. I pray for the singles here that you would protect them, that you would protect them from making unwise decisions. You would protect them from not doing what is good. I pray that you would um, keep them pure. And Father, that the body of Christ would come around them and watch over them and give them wise counsel, that they would seek it out and uh, and eagerly welcome it when given. 
that we might protect them and help them to make God-honoring decisions in their relationships. Father, help us not to follow the world and the examples of the world. Help us to remember that Satan is the God of this world and he is in charge of this world system and the methods that he defines are not for our good but for our harm. And so, Father, help us to have wisdom. Help us to use discernment. And, Father, may all of this be to your glory, honor, and praise. Amen.